Welcome to the Freudian Slip, the Identity Theft Resource Center's podcast, where we talk about all things identity, crime, compromise, and fraud that impact people and businesses. I'm James Lee, the COO of the ITRC, and thanks for joining us today. The concept of identity has always been a bit, well, squishy. For most of human history, you were who you said you were. If you didn't like your reputation, you simply had to move on down the road and set up shop again as someone else and hope that no one who knew you before showed up to complain. Over time, we added identity documents. King Henry V of England created passports to make travel easier. Later, birth certificates were issued by the state instead of birth records recorded in the family Bible or at the neighborhood house of worship. With automobiles came driver's licenses, which eventually carried the first mass use of biometrics in the United States, a photograph of the person. Biometrics have been around for centuries, though. In ancient Babylonia and China, your fingerprint was your signature. In the late 1800s, a cousin of Charles Darwin determined that no two fingerprints are alike, and a new tool to solve crime was born, fingerprint matching, a biometric still in use today. The rapid advance of technology in the last four decades has produced new forms of biometrics, DNA analysis, retina scans, voice matching, facial recognition, and others and they all come with the potential to violate the rules of unintended consequences. If we fear what we do not understand, there is certainly a lot of misunderstanding going on around these days about biometrics. Here to help us develop some clarity and perspective is Simon Marchand, Chief Fraud Prevention Officer for Security and Biometrics at Nuance, an artificial intelligence company that works across many industries in the private and public sectors, mostly known for pioneering voice biometrics years ago. And the ITRC's own CEO, Eva Velasquez, joins us as well. Simon, Eva, thank you for being here today. Well, thank you for having me. I'm thrilled as always, James. I can't wait for this conversation. Well, this is this is one of the topics du jour, right? Um, and it's it's a topic that there's is probably as much misinformation as there is real information. So I think we're going to have a very good conversation. Um, Simon, I want to start with you uh, to, first of all, tell us a little bit about nuance, but then talk about the role of biometrics in identity. Yeah, so yeah, let's start with Nuance, right? Because Nuance is a, a company that has a very broad portfolio. Uh, we've been in the AI world and intelligent engagement and speech recognition business for our, for for past 20 years now. Uh, but in biometrics, um, w- what we actually do is we have that security division that uses all of the voice technology that we have developed over the past 20 years and, and allows us to create voice prints for customers. So the same way you have a unique fingerprint or face print or iris print, we can do the same with your voice. Uh, So we work with big organizations, enterprises, governments to help uh, authenticate more easily uh, individuals when they call into a call center or when they use an app and they want to speak to to their phone. Uh, So so we, we create that voice print. And when you're asking what it does with digital identity, well, you can imagine, you know, a digital identity being uh, a virtualized wallet. But if you want to secure that wallet properly, if you want to secure that digital identity properly, being able to tie it to something that is unique, inherent to you, in that case, uh, voice biometrics, I think it's just the key to tie everything together and make it really more secure. So that's what we do uh, at Nuance in a nutshell. So moving on to that, the role of biometrics and in you 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 gave a very eloquent answer around voice and, and and you know 
these days there's a lot of you know there's a lot of heat there's not much light and it, it tends to be we focus on one form of biometric right now it tends to be facial but really there's a, there's a whole variety of biometrics right and it's not just the the things that we see on television there's a whole host of ways you can identify yourself using some form of a biometric is that is that fair to say it's absolutely fair to say and, and you know to, to each use case it's proper biometrics to use and you mentioned you know facial recognition that's one that uh, you know works really well when you need to unlock your phone for example very easy to use in an airport where you have cameras and it's easy to to identify people doesn't have such good press when it comes to privacy and public surveillance though um, but we also have you know your iris can be used as a, a biometrics factor again requiring some uh, very heavy hardware everyone or that, that has a, a recent smartphone will use their fingerprint probably to unlock that phone um, so that's another one that's very convenient but again uh, very heavily relying on hardware so that's why we transition to to non-device bound biometrics or not not non-hardware bound biometrics so when you use voice it doesn't really matter if you're speaking in a nice microphone or in an old you know telephone or a skype session the important part is just capturing the sound of your voice um, in addition to that, you, you can do conversational biometrics, so analyzing what you say and not just how you sound. Uh, and we really use both when we authenticate someone, right? We merge what's, what makes us unique as we speak, regardless of the language, regardless of the channel or the device, and we pair it with the way you say things. So, you know, myself being a native uh, French speaker, I have a very different way to speak in French and English. I have different vocabulary. Uh, the pacing of my sentences will be different, so we can also you know, use that to create unique prints for, for individuals. What's really powerful with this is you can start using it across more than just voice channels. You know, if you look at how someone types, for example, the way to use emojis, spacing on a keyboard, all of this is, is very characteristic to them. So we can use the same conversational technology to profile how they're writing in a chat session or in an email. And maybe the last biometric technology that we, we talk about a lot more these, these days is behavioral biometrics. So how do you interact with the device? The way you hold your phone, the way you swipe on it, that's unique to you as well. So if you can mix and match all of these technologies, the way you hold your phone, what you're typing in your chat session, the way you're talking to someone, uh, then mixing and matching those technologies is really what allows us to provide biometrics to the wider audience and not just you know requiring people to have a fingerprint reader or a very expensive camera or, or iris reader you know, to be able to use the biometrics technology. Eva, bring you into the conversation now, uh, because all of these things that Simon just talked about, the reason we have to pay attention to them is because of this rise of not identity theft so much as identity fraud. So talk about why that's important today. I, and I do think that it's a it's the key piece of this conversation because to be honest, we can geek out here a little bit and get really meta about all the capabilities of this technology, but your average uh, user and consumer, there's still a little bit of a creepy factor, right? I mean, there are clearly there are privacy implications, but there's still a little bit of that. Wow, you can discern that much about me and capture that kind of information. And we need to get a little bit past that reflexive creepy factor because this is it. There is so much identity fraud right now. And this is one of the tools that we have to leverage 
to fight it. And, and I think we need to do a better job of informing people of that. Um, when we consider, you know, our, our identity credentials used to be consist of a much smaller, um, you know, group of items. And it's just broadened so much, especially when we consider usernames and passwords. They really are identity credentials. And we at the ITRC have been absolutely deluged with people experiencing non-financial account takeovers, particularly in social media and their email. And that is a big stinking deal. And I, I just think that individual users don't necessarily understand the risk that goes with these managing these accounts. And they certainly don't understand the risk and the pain until that account is taken over. And then panic sets in. And, and we know that they're panicked because we're talking to them. So, I mean, James, correct me if I'm wrong here. You may know the numbers a little bit better than I do, but we've talked to thousands, truly thousands and thousands of people in the last year who are contacting us because their usernames and passwords are compromised. And then their accounts on their, their social media accounts, their email accounts are being taken over by bad actors who are then just using that to perpetrate even more, more fraud more identity crimes and more account takeover for, you know, for the next victim and the chain goes on and on. And Ava, I, I think you, you're, you're pointing in the right direction. You, you're, you're highlighting it perfectly. The reason why that technology becomes so much more important today is really following how fraudsters have evolved the mm -hmm. way they do business. And let's, let's never forget that they're running a business. They're, they're very effective at it, but identity theft has, you know, grown steadily for the past 20 years and in the past two three years it you know almost doubled from the years before it, it crazy crazy numbers in the u.s alone we're talking about you know potentially millions of victims you know more tens, than uh, tens of millions of victims yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> one point more than 1.4 million reported the, to the ftc last year but that's just the ones that take the time to report it the ones mm -hmm. that are aware that they were victims so th that's why so many organizations are trying to move away from just asking a few questions, you know, to which the answers are available on the dark web. They are available following massive data breaches. They are available because so many people share all of that information willingly on social media. Mm -hmm. so, so I think when people start understanding that the role of biometrics in their life is to move away from those pins and passwords and, you know, basic security questions, it makes them feel a lot more comfortable. It, it usually shows that the organization, whether it's a bank or, or a carrier or an insurance company, really has their security at heart. Um, and, and that's you know what makes every interaction so much more secure because mm -hmm. fraudsters are resourceful. They have a very reliable supply chain uh, that they can exploit to obtain more credentials and more credit files and everything they need for, for identity theft. I don't think we've ever uh, seen, a, seen a bigger problem you know, that consumers are kind of stuck having to deal with uh, than identity theft today. Talk about for a second, Simon, because, you, you, you know, if you, if you look at your portfolio at Nuance and you're, you're a, you're a, a well-respected member of this community. Um, talk about what are the, 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 the risks to people accepting these beyond the obvious privacy stuff, you know, because we, that's fairly well covered by the popular media and the main, the mainstream media, but things about, that could shake people's confidence. You know, can you fake someone's voice? Can you fake their 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 face? Can you fake 
the behavioral parts, you know, that you're, you're left-handed, you're right-handed, you, you press so hard on your phone, all these newer forms of, of verification of identity. Yeah. Talk about the risk about that. Yeah. Everything can be faked. I think let's start with that, right? Uh, your, your voice can be recorded. Your voice can be synthesized. Um, so, so that's what we'll call, you know, like a deep voice or a deep fake of your voice. Um, there is technology out there that allows you to do it, and even consumer-facing technology. Now, saying that it's possible doesn't mean it's being used by fraudsters. And, and there's two reasons for that. First, it's extremely resource-intensive and complicated to have someone's voice, for example, uh, sampled and synthesized and then reused in real life. And second of all, the technology that uh, that runs voice biometric systems is just a lot more powerful than the human ear. So what sounds like a very good imitation of your voice never is good enough to break into a biometric system. Um, so, so I just want to make that distinction between what's what's possible to achieve and what actually happens in the fraud world with you know, hundreds of millions of voice prints that we have created around the world. Uh, we're talking north of 600 million voice prints for Nuance alone. There hasn't been a single case reported of a fraudster successfully synthesizing someone's voice to defraud them. Uh, so it's a very, very secure technology. And it's, it's technology that evolves every two, three months. There's always, always a new algorithm out there. There's always something new that our researchers will will. will Put in place to make sure that fraudsters uh, cannot get the upper hand. Now, the real risk, I think, is which companies provide those services. Um, Nuance is a well-established player, and, and we say Nuance, but you know it's actually Microsoft today. Huge player in that field, very experienced, very large footprint. Um, but when it comes to using what's inherent to you, when it's the most private information about you, your biometrics information, you don't want this information to fall in the hands of, you know, sorcerer's apprentice, people that are just experimenting around with this. I think there it's more than best practices. You have to be exemplary in how you use that information, how you store it, how you process it, uh, to make sure that, you know, the general public stays confident that it's used just for their good, and it's going to be resold or lost or traded. Um, so we're very, very focused on making sure that our biometrics and AI practice, uh, you know, follows the highest possible standards to not only to build that trust, but to maintain that trust in biometrics technology. Eva, we get asked at the ITRC on a fairly frequent basis, our view around biometrics and the use of biometrics. It's usually comes from a position of someone seen something in the media and they're going, oh my God, this is terrible. But occasionally it is from the, it's also from the perspective of if we don't use biometrics, what do we use? So talk about, talk about our view as, as an organization of biometrics. Well, I touched on it before. Um, the, we acknowledge that creepy factor. There, there is that reflexive distaste. And, and also I think a lot of um, misinformation, particularly when people are thinking about the government um, having my biometrics and, and using that as a source or a source of truth to um, you know compare. And we have to, it's about information and it's about really informing people, look, you are already using biometrics. <laughs> if you have a driver's license, the government, your state government does have a picture of you. They have your biometrics. I mean, Apple 
and the iOS platform really normalized it with the the you know the fingerprint and and face recognition to open your phone. So I do think people are getting more and more used to it. And but we also hear from a lot of the folks, uh, privacy advocates and folks who are deeply concerned about the long term implications of using this information. And and we see both sides. So at a high level, if, to the ITRC, it is about informed and consent based processes with the digital off ramps for essential services like government benefits. So yes, it needs to be consent based, and we need to allow people to understand that there's a huge difference. And I'll just use facial again, because that has been a big topic of conversation. There's a huge difference between me saying, I want to authenticate myself so I can avail myself of whatever platform service uh, this is. And I'm going to take that picture and please go ahead, do verify that this is me against a known source of truth, whatever that source of truth is, versus taking an image off of a CCTV camera and trying to identify that person. We know that there's bias in that process, but this is very different. And I think the other piece that we all have to remember, now this is, you know, in particular for, again, for essential services like government benefits, that we do need to have a digital off-ramp and that not all individuals can use all forms of biometric authentication easily. You know, we think that because it's easy for us, um, that it's easy for everyone. And that's just not the case. And the example I often use because of our work with an organization called Penny Forward and their CEO, Chris Peterson, it's just to remember that taking a selfie may be easy for you, but for a blind person, it carries with it some difficulties that we may not think of. So, so digital off ramps, um, and, and, uh, Addressing the needs of all populations for essential services is also an important component here. Yeah, and I think you, you're you're absolutely right. Uh, addressing the consent issue and making sure that people have the choice. Right, Th this should be something that you do proactively. And when you agree to enroll your voice, let's say with uh, a bank, well, it shouldn't be a blanket consent for another bank to have access to it, right? And and that's why the way we we deploy it. The voice print you create with organization A will not work with organization B. You will need to go through the process with the next organization. So for people that are, you know, uncomfortable with the idea of sharing their voice print, let's say with the IRS, well, they don't have to do it. They can only use it with their banks and vice versa. Now, if you don't want to have to find, you know, your tax report from two years ago and provide some number of some line to to authenticate, then you could decide to only uh, provide your biometrics information to that particular agency only for the purpose of authentication, right? And and I think that's also the other important part, you know, making sure that this technology is used to authenticate someone that is trying to ac access a service or modify a service and not just constantly be you know watching what everybody's doing. This is not our goal. This is not why we developed that technology, but really more to replace the security questions that you'd have to answer anyway. And talking about accessibility, I think, is also important. I was pointing out earlier that you know we try to focus on technology that does not rely so heavily on hardware because we don't want the only people to have the privilege of using that high level of security to be the ones that can afford a very high-end smartphone. 
mm-hmm. like you would need to have uh, if you want to have a proper you know selfie camera uh, we want to make sure that this technology can be used with the most vulnerable populations and i'm going to take senior citizens as an example prime targets for fraudsters prime target for scammers well we want to make sure that even if you have an old wireline that technology can still protect you because we know that these populations will be targeted more heavily than others so so i think accessibility and using technology that does not only replace the questions we're asking today, but also increases accessibility to services and to critical services, um, will really drive adoption, but but also you know drive the benefits for everyone ultimately. Mm-hmm. Couldn't agree with you more, my friend. <laughs> um, oh, there's a lot to unpack in, in both of your comments there. Um, uh, uh, this concept of accessibility, the concept of verification versus recognition, recognition, you know, and I'll throw out, I'll throw out a geek term, you know, one-to-one versus one-to-many. Um, but you also said a moment ago, Simon, that there's, there is this emerging body of behavioral biometrics. And that's something I don't think a lot of people are, are aware of yet, but, but, probably should be. And isn't that sort of reflective of the future of biometrics? Because that it becomes very, very difficult to, for somebody to, to, to fake or to try to hijack. Because if you're looking at, you know, all the kinds of things that make me uniquely me, the more you have, the harder it is for you to pretend to be me. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, but that said, behavioral works when you have a device in your hand, right? It's, it's it's very good if you're on a website and I can track how you're moving your mouse or you have an app uh, and a phone in your hand and I can track how you're holding that phone. But what we see in, you know, year over year over year, and that, that's been true for the past 12, 13 years I've been in the fraud business or the anti-fraud business, I should say, fraudsters will always try to get to the human being in the organization. This is This is how they succeed. So... Behavioral is really good to protect digital channels, but once you've protected your digital channels, you will still have someone in a call center, someone in a branch, someone in a store, and that human being is hired to help their customers. That's what's expected of them. And fraudsters do know very well how to exploit that. And that's why we think that even though, yes, behavioral is the future for digital channels, most definitely, you still need to have technology and a platform that orchestrates all of the other techs, like conversational and voice, so you can protect the agents from the call centers or now you know, working from home from that social engineering that always comes their way. Because usually the call center is kind of left as an afterthought. You know, It's there because we need to have it, but we don't pay attention as much. And during COVID, we saw it. Frosters went straight for the call center and they placed orders and they you know, picked up orders um, right after in stores. They really want to talk to someone. They want to exploit that vulnerability, the error, like the human error factor. This is what they're going for. So yeah, uh, behavioral is the future, but it, it's not the only way to go. And, and we shouldn't over-index on, on one channel, on one particular technology. This is what fraudsters would love the most, just for us to turn a blind eye on everything else. Well, but we love a good silver bullet. don't we love it yeah um uh, so last 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 question here for you know both of you weigh in on here i'll just kind of make a blanket statement and that is um this is a continuum and 
you know, when we look at, you know, for the first part of most everyone who's probably listening to this podcast, you know, they started out with their first line of defense being a password. And that password is even optional at the time, whether you had a password on your device and the later became, you know, and it was short, you know, it was password, <laughs> you know, maybe, may, and then it got more complicated and you, you gave a can password one, two, three, and then you added a, an exclamation point. And, uh, so, you know, these kinds of authenticators have evolved over time. So my, my question there is to both of you, where are we on this continuum and how do we bring people along so they will take the actions necessary to protect themselves? Because having the tools available and then people using the tools are two different things. So Eva, I'd like for you to go first. Yeah. And I think I'll let Simon talk about the, where we are at this continuum piece, because I want to focus on the, you know, how do we bring people along? And I think, a big part of it is um, trusting them a little bit to one, be interested and two, to assume, to absorb the information that we present to them. You said earlier, uh, I'm going to use a geek term. And I was thinking to myself, you know what, that's an accurate statement today that only geeks use this term and probably know what it means. That And that is the job of the ITRC is to make some of these terms um, understandable and part of the common lexicon now. They, they really need to be because we are all engaging with technology and it goes back to that informed piece. So what do we do about it? Uh, from from my view, the role of the ITRC and other advocates is to provide the information. And frankly, I, I need to say this carefully, but it needs to be unbiased. Um, I, I do think people can make their own decisions about what they are comfortable with and what they're not and provide their consent, informed consent based on that. And it's going to be different for different people. Um, I am personally less concerned. I, I see the benefit of using biometrics to authenticate and verify me. Um, and I see the risks, but I see the benefits that outweigh the risks. There are other folks, we need to bring them along, let them see what's happening. They may not be as comfortable, but at least they will be informed about what these terms mean and how this actually works. And I, and I think we can trust people to learn this information and be able to embrace it. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. We we need to educate. Um, you can't force technology like that like, like that onto people. And, and I think if we can make them understand and make everyone understand what what value it adds to your life, uh, you know, first of all, what what it means to be a victim of fraud, you know, to to hear the stories from others, um, so, so to to make sure that they want to avoid being a victim victim themselves. That's one thing. But using biometrics, I think you know, brings other benefits when it comes to just the ease of interacting with organizations, uh, not having to go in person anymore for very high risk transactions, uh, the speed at which you're going to, to, to be able to interact, the flexibility, the accessibility. When, when technology like that proves to have value and added value, I think people adopt it uh, more and more. And, and we have seen it that 2021 over 2020, the increase in uh, consumer use of biometrics was, you know, close to 50%. So very, very high numbers. We're now used to it. Now, 
when it comes to the continuum, I think we have transformed very quickly how we interact with each other, how we interact with organizations. That drove, you know, having uh, online identities, having our emails, having our passwords, and the ways we use passwords have changed. And now we have two-factor authentication. It was first via SMS. Now we push notifications. So we're really strengthening the way we interact online. I think what we see right now, and I'd say since the past, six to 12 months is a rapid acceleration of of national identities being digitalized uh, and and moving to proper national digital identities and i think from there once we we finally shift away from these old id cards that are completely unsecure um, this is going to transform again how we interact because once you start digitizing that information and we're not going to go too much into that detail but it also gives you more control over your identity all of a sudden when you have your identity on a phone you don't have to share everything about you all the time and the example i always give is when you go into a bar well that doesn't happen to me anymore because i'm a little too old for that but <laughs> I, I used to be asked to provide an id right and the reason why the doorman needed to see my id was just to know if i was allowed to be in the bar they didn't need to see my photo my address, my name, my date of birth. All they needed to know was, yes, this person is of age to get into the establishment. Now, digital identities allow to do that. If they're paired with biometrics, we're, we now have the tools to only share what has to be shared. So our own individual privacy you know, gets under our control and we can protect it more by selecting what we want to share with organizations. So, so I think once we, we start properly educating people on what digital identity means and what biometrics means in their life, uh, in that continuum of how we interact and how security, uh, you know, is, is put in place by, by enterprises, we're going to see a lot of transformations. You know, we're going to see real passwordless, for example, Mm-hmm. Passwords are just another way for fraudsters to get in. So we need to accelerate moving to passwordless. But for that, we have a couple of other pieces to put together and make sure that people trust the technology that's underlying it. Well, and I just have to say one more thing, James, because everything you said, Simon, was spot on. And hopefully in this continuum, we will also continue to close that gap for access because um Digital identity is is every example that you gave, I agree with and think is great, but it's all reliant on the fact that someone has access to that device that can house that digital identity. So hopefully we can also close the gap to access so that we don't end up leaving uh, a lot of folks behind there, especially when it is, it can have um, some excellent, there are excellent opportunities for more control and privacy. Um, I particularly think about young women going into bars and not needing to share with a random stranger, their address and, you know, where they live. Um, I think that is, there's a safety issue there that I would like to see all women have access to. Uh, Mm -hmm. so we need to not forget about those folks. Absolutely. And the, the last thing I would add would be, just like the internet on this podcast, Simon, no one knows you're a dog. So, <laughs> uh, well, thank you both. Uh, fascinating conversation. We've covered a lot of ground in a short period of time, um, and we certainly appreciate it. So thank you to both of you for being here today. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks, Eva. Thanks, James. 
Yeah, it was a pleasure. Great conversation. You can learn more about biometrics and how they can help reduce fraud at nuance.com forward slash fraud. In particular, look for Simon's posts on the Nuance blog. If you think you've been the victim of an identity crime or you want to avoid becoming a victim, you can speak with an ITRC expert advisor on the phone. You can chat live on the web or send us an email during our normal business hours. Just visit our new website at our old web address, idtheftcenter.org, to get started. Be sure to join us next week for our sister podcast, The Weekly Breach Breakdown. Until then, thanks for listening.